Hey you, welcome to my new podcast. It's called Awesome because it's about things that are awesome. Hello from a very echoey room in Cape Town, South Africa, and welcome to another episode of Awesome. Why did I say another? This is the first episode. Anyway, <laughs> in this episode, my guest is Mr. John O'Nolan who is the founder of an organization called Ghost. He's also an awesome human being who I'm very happy to have had some time with while he's also been in Cape Town, South Africa. Now, John's the founder and head designer at Ghost. You might have heard of it. You might even use it like I do. My blog is powered by Ghost. It's an open source hackable platform for building and running online publications. And besides for my own humble blog, it's also used to power publications at some slightly larger organizations like NASA, Sky News, Elon Musk's Open AI Initiative. There are literally a million other online publications that run the Ghost software. The interesting thing is, well, one of the interesting things, there certainly are many, is that Ghost run as a non-profit organization. And it also is open source, which means anybody can download it, hack it, change it, distribute it as their own. You know the deal with open source software. And it only has 10 full-time employees. And there's my phone in the background. Let me silence that so Okay. Where were we? Oh, yes. John's also a nomad. He's got no home, spends his life on the road. He travels with a couple of bags and he runs his organization remotely. His team members are spread out across the globe. In fact, I don't think any two of them are even in the same country. Uh, so in this conversation, we talk about his life on the road, tips and tricks for digital nomads, uh, which is something I enjoy doing as much as I can, being a bit of a family man and also loving Cape Town so much. Uh, but I do spend enough time on the road, God knows. Um, so we'll talk about how to keep a team in sync while you're traveling across time zones. Uh, we discussed the founding of Ghost, John's ideas about the role of the designer CEO, because that's really what he is. We also touch on women in tech, which is not an easy thing for men in tech to talk about always, um, but hopefully we did a good enough job of that. And then the best tools for virtual teams and a whole lot more. So if you're rethinking life and business, uh, maybe making changes to an established organization, or you just like traveling, then I think you'll enjoy this conversation as much as I did. And then at the end, John also drops this tidbit about um, this life-changing realization that he had on the beach one day in the early days of the ghost journey. It's really worth hearing that. So even if you don't want to listen to the rest of this podcast, at least skip to the end and catch that insight from John before you just uh, delete it. We actually managed to record this conversation in a room that's even worse than the one I'm in now. So the audio audio quality is good. Like you can hear everything we saying but uh apologies for it not being perfect that's something i plan to work on in future episodes but here's my conversation with john o'noden john welcome to the show thank you for having me oh, thank you for being here <laughs> <laughs> there's there's so much i i wanted to speak to you about um as i said to you i've been a, a ghost user for uh, a few years now actually um since before the official release, I think I had it up and running on a server. Um, but also, you know, as a digital nomad and somebody who who lives on the road, as as I want to do, trade 
secrets and tips and tricks and <laughs> find out what works for you and what doesn't. But but let's start with the, the John O'Nolan backstory. Where are you from? Where did you grow up? And how did you end up doing what you're doing today? <laughs> I think for most people, that's like a, a simple answer. For me, it's like the most complicated question anyone could ever ask me, which sucks because when you travel, as you know, like the number one question you get asked is where are you from? Right. Um, and I don't identify with any one place. So the, the very short version of this story is... I was born in Scotland to English and Irish parents, but then I grew up in Holland with the first language of Dutch, so English is technically my second language. But I spent seven of my formative years, basically most of my childhood in the Philippines, in Southeast Asia, before moving to England for the first time for around university age. Mm. And since then, I've spent five years in England, two years in Egypt, two years in Austria, um, just under a year in Thailand, and a lot of other places in between so where am I from I have no idea um citizen of the world is the kind of vague platitude of a label people usually assign to me which I don't really find particularly attractive either um in terms of what I do I started my career as a freelance web developer usually specializing in wordpress and specifically building blogs and publications with wordpress um I later became a core contributor to the wordpress design team um helping to lead the effort of designing the WordPress admin. This was um, quite a few years ago now. Mm. Six, seven, no, five or six years ago. Um, and then from that, I went on as I watched WordPress grow up from this little humble blogging platform into a rather larger open source massive content management system slash website builder. I wondered what WordPress would look like if you rebuilt it using modern technology, eliminate all of that technical debt, and just focus it completely on publishing and journalism and nothing else. Um, that sat in my head as an idea for many years, and one that I considered just to be like too obvious and not that interesting. Um, but it wouldn't go away. So at the end of 2012, I wrote this blog post um, I said, here's my idea for what WordPress might look like if you redesigned it in this way. Um, I've called it Ghost. And I put some mock-ups there thinking, I'll just get the idea down and tweet it. And maybe a few people will say, hey, that's a cool idea. Mm -hmm. um, little did I know, a few hours later, it would hit the front page of Hacker News <laughs> and uh, receive a quarter of a million page views in the space of a week uh, and rack up 30,000 emails, subscriptions of people who wanted to find out uh, when it would become a reality. Yeah, I was one of those people. Um, and <laughs> I obviously want to spend a lot of time talking about Ghost um, and diving into its genesis and how it became what it is today. But before that, let's stick with this this concept of not having a home <laughs> and living out of suitcases. Yeah, um, because I find I find a lot of comfort in that lifestyle, um, and I find a lot of. <laughs> That's the word I'm looking for. It, it kind of centers me. Yes. I become unnerved when I'm in one place for too long. Agreed. But I, I've realized that while that's my normal, uh, most people I, I run into find the opposite to be true. They're like, <laughs> oh, my God, you don't know where home is. <laughs> so it, firstly, do you have a city that you think of as home at the moment? Is there an apartment somewhere with stuff in it that you go back to? No, nowhere. Um I don't, there's, so there's no home base of any description, and there's really not one geographic location that feels uh, like home in any way. Like, I show up there and I'm like, ah, oh, yes, this is, this is where I belonged. Like, that's just not a part of my existence. Yeah. And your, your stuff, yeah. <laughs> is, is, is that literally everything that can be carried with you? Yeah, there's one, one carry-on roller um, and 
this this here backpack, which is just beside me and is a very modest size. Um, at the moment, I have an extra duffel with me just because um, I had some extra stuff I bought in Thailand. I'm transporting it back to, I have a storage location in the UK, um, not an apartment, just uh, an attic or a friend's house. Um, and that's it. Yeah. So I'll usually, uh, from that attic, I'll draw like some snowboarding gear maybe once every now and then. Right. Um, that's about the only things I keep in storage. Winter clothes, snowboarding gear. Um, I think that's it. Okay. So we're, we're in Cape Town, South Africa at the moment. There we are. Um, we'll, we'll talk about what exactly you're doing here in a, well, actually, you, no, let's go there now. How did you, how did you end up in Cape Town? Cause what I'm getting at is, is how you, how you logistically, I guess, end up in places and decide where to, <laughs> where to go to next. If it's following a whim or, or friends or, but let's start with Cape Town. What are you doing here? Um, I'm really just here for fun. I've, I've had it on my list of like ideal places that I might want to, like when I choose somewhere to live longer term, um, I've had Vienna, Vancouver, Cape Town, and uh, New Zealand on my list for I don't know how many years, and I've just been kind of making my way around them. So yeah, it's been on my list for ages. Uh, actually, when I started doing this full-time travel thing, deciding where to go next became one of the most frustrating, stressful decisions that really bothered me because I was like, I could go anywhere, but I'm not like a big touristy guy. I'm not interested in, in sightseeing in terms of, um, I don't know, wonders of the world or museums or tourist attractions it just doesn't do it for me. So it's like, mm. if you can go anywhere and you have an unlimited amount of time, yeah, where do you go? Um, and eventually I figured out, um, that I really enjoy kite surfing. Mm. And once I picked that up, I just started following uh, my way around the world based on the kind of wind calendar and uh, Cape Town's obviously a huge, <laughs> huge part of the kite surfing uh, community. Yeah, in uh, fact, we just had, a, a, as you probably saw, a massive cycle race that happens in Cape Town every oh year God, that was cancelled because of the wind this year. Did you see the video? It's crazy. The guy, like, he's getting pulled along by his bike. Literally, his literally. <laughs> you know, I, I was actually reading a thread on Facebook where somebody had said, I can't believe they cancelled you know, a cycle race because of wind. And, um, they, uh, somebody immediately posted that video as a response yeah. <laughs> and you just see this guy standing in the middle of the road and it looks like his bike is a sail. Yeah. Like he's holding yeah. it above his head and the wind is just, he's barely holding it. Yeah. Like, that's how hard it's going. Yeah. So it's a good place for kite surfing. Yeah, that's for yeah. sure. Yeah, so the wind brought you to Cape Town. Yeah, in many ways. Also, this I have weirdly like even though I've never been here, I have a ton of friends here. Just a lot of the the tech friends and uh, developer friends have made over the years have been South African. It's uh, it's a nexus. Yeah, it definitely is. There's the, you know there, there are towns like um, I guess Sydney is one. Um, Tel Aviv in Israel, although I've never been. Uh, yeah. A lot of my friends in the startup scene talk about Tel Aviv, London. Uh, Singapore, yeah, um, just you know, they they seem to be on the uh, on the circuit for for traveling founders, designers, developers, <laughs> yeah, you name it, yeah. One of one of my oldest friends actually is um, Ad Pienaar, who's oh, one yeah. of the co-founders of WooThemes, <clears throat> and Mark Forrester, incidentally, both from a South African. Yeah, Mark used to be in London. He's so been, fairly prolific in the WordPress, uh, exactly in yeah, the WordPress yeah. scene. Yeah, they were very very early. Okay, so you're in you're in Cape Town to kite, ish. Yeah, also just just for fun. So you're you're a one way ticket guy. Yes. How do you handle the requirements in some countries that that you have to have a return ticket? Apparently, there's some services now that will actually, it's you kind of rent a return ticket. Yeah. yeah How yeah. do you get around this? Yeah. So this is a great question because it has a very simple answer. <laughs> I completely fucking ignore them. Yeah. The the whole like you need a return ticket is bullshit. 
It, oh yeah, there's like there's no law for that. It turns out that's just like a thing they try and impose on you, and the only people who ever try and impose it is the check-in agent at your departure, your uh, location of departure, and they'll start grilling you about if you have a return ticket. Now, if you just stave them off for long enough and say you have one, but it's not printed or you don't need one because there's a, an agreement, you bullshit your way through any way uh, to just make them shut up. Like, yeah. I've never, ever, ever had a problem, nor have I even been asked by an immigration agent, um, do you have a return ticket? Like, it just hasn't happened. It's yeah. just this weird myth that seems to be perpetuated, um, but it's not an actual thing. It's really weird. Interesting. Well, so, I, with all things travel, generally, uh, airport rules, um, these types of return ticket things, mm-hmm. I say just go for it and assume that you can do whatever you want. And if you get stopped legitimately, then, you know, do whatever you have to do. But to be honest, like that's the easiest way I get through airport security and everything else is just by going straight to business class and saying, I'm really sorry, I need help. I'm running late. And they help you or go to the express queue and do the same thing. They help you. Like if you just kind of go for it constantly and just assume that you'll be fine, uh, get through a surprising number of things. It's interesting because it's, it's about confidence, right? And, and so much of staying sane as a traveler has to do with your level of confidence. I've I've got a friend um, who refuses to do queues. Like he will not stand in a queue. <laughs> and um, traveling with him is a nightmare because you're <laughs> always that guy who just you know shows up late, butts into the front of the queue. But a you realize firstly how accommodating people are. Mm. Secondly, how nobody really knows what the system is. You're in this environment yes. where there are clearly a lot of systems and procedures, but they're all opaque. Yeah. And so people are like, oh, well, obviously he's got the card that lets you get into exactly. the, or whatever, you know, yeah. <laughs> insert excuse for the other APR. Yeah. And he'll just, w- without fail, just walk straight into the front of any queue at any airport anywhere in the world. And everybody will just let him, including the people at the front of the queue yeah, yeah, yeah. manning the station who should be saying, excuse me, sir, there's a queue here. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and it's weird. Like how often it just works. The, the, I think one of my favorite ones is the immigration queues, which are the worst. They're like up to three hours long. Yeah. Uh, three hour one in Brazil ones. But often they have a business class, one of those as well or a diplomat one. And if you just go straight to that desk where no one is and say, Oh, I'm really sorry, but I'm in a rush and something, anything I'm late. I'm, I'm really not feeling well. Sometimes don't even say anything. They'll just take you like, it's fine. But the majority of people are just sheep. They'll just go and stand in a queue for ages. Yeah. Um, and it sounds kind of silly. Like, Oh, it's, you're a bit of a dick for doing that. But to be honest, if you travel full time and you do this, constantly um finding these little wins becomes like what makes or breaks your day absolutely. in terms of your energy level and everything else absolutely yeah okay so you've got backpack carry on check-in yeah the check-in's gonna go you've talked your way through <laughs> the paperwork yeah yeah how do you decide where to stay are you kind of living on airbnb or kind of yeah i'm i'm a really terrible I don't plan anything kind of traveler I'll just show up and inevitably like nothing will work and then I'll just grab something last minute and then I'll try and figure out something better from there yeah I I don't necessarily recommend that um I'm just so averse to actually doing research and committing to plans Mm. that uh I tend to fall into (laughs) into that way of doing things yeah yeah 
I mean, it's also, it, it seems to me, not being nearly as well-traveled as you are, um, or at least not switching locations mm. as often as you do, I, I yeah. tend to fall into um, cycles of sort of Cape Town, London, Johannesburg, and then it'll, right. you know, it, that'll carry on for a few months, yeah. that cycle. Um, but, you know, I have traveled in, in Zam, you know, in, in, in Africa to places like Zambia, etc., yeah. and, and found that, you know, credit card machines are everywhere. You you can pay with a card anywhere, so never travel with cash. Um, But increasingly, the kind of the kind of things that enable the lifestyle, so Airbnb, yeah, becoming fairly ubiquitous now. Uber, yeah, for you know, better or worse, um, you will find Uber or an equivalent if you are somebody who doesn't believe in using Uber. (laughs) Yeah, just about anywhere in the world. Yeah. but you find, I mean, where's the hairiest place you've been to where really there's, you know, no internet connection, paying for stuff has been a nightmare, no ride-sharing service to speak of, or are you finding it's pretty easy to, to just stay on the road you know, the, anyway? These days it's pretty easy anywhere. Um, hairiest places, some of, some of the more remote parts of the Philippines are a disaster. Um, there aren't aren't really these days any or at least that I've been any very very difficult places where everything's impossible yeah Um, I was actually I was in Zambia last year yeah 2016 and um, we were out in the middle of of sort of rural Zambia not near any of the big towns or cities and we were out on on the Zambezi River and the, the, you know the, the local fishermen are out in their boats called makoros which are these carved out African canoes yeah and we'd sort of stop and speak to the guys ask them how the fishing's going and about the area etc and I was chatting to this one fisherman and when we parted ways he was like I like you man and he took out his phone he's like can I friend you on Facebook <laughs> and we were just you know standing in the middle of rural Zambia <laughs> Uh, friending each other on Facebook. Yeah. And I feel like I could have, you know, whipped out Airbnb and probably found something. <laughs> <laughs> a hut down the road. It's yeah. uh, it, it's kind of crazy what's happening. And, and obviously, you know, this isn't the same in, in, in all of the developing world, but certainly in sub-Saharan Africa, what's happening with Southeast internet Asia connectivity well. and yeah. it's absolutely crazy. Yeah. Let's talk about work on the road um, mm. because you are founder, you are running an organization. <laughs> yeah. Presumably you have, or you can tell me how big the team of people is that you're working with on a, I presume, near daily basis. Yeah. How do you manage that on the road? <laughs> Constant challenge. Um, there is no one answer. The overarching theme is balance. Um, the thing I found consistently is if I move more frequently than every two weeks, Mm. things get problematic um that's the the cutoff point like if i if i travel more than two weeks it's fine but as soon as i'm taking flights less than two weeks apart um the amount of travel and adjustment and switching hotels or locations uh the amount of time that takes up really starts to eat into work um in terms of everything else, it's really not that hard. I always say remote teams and, and distributed work uh, is 90% way easier than you would imagine it to be for anyone mm-hmm. who hasn't uh, done it before or been a part of a remote company. 90% of it is way easier than you need to be. It's, it's or sorry, than you might imagine it to be. Um, it's the same as when you work in an office beside a whole bunch of people and actually you're talking on Slack. Like yeah. That, you don't need to be sitting beside each other for that. Um, the hard stuff is just setting up your time zones 
um, making sure everyone's kind of on the same page from that point of view. And then all the soft skills. So like knowing when someone's in a bad mood, knowing what the tone of conversation is without having facial expressions or body language or all of those kinds of things to go off or the random ephemeral conversations that you would have over a coffee um, where a great idea suddenly crops up. Mm. Um, so those things take more effort. So we, we kind of plan uh, calls with the whole team more regularly to talk to one another face-to-face over Zoom um, and have twice annual team retreats where we get the whole team together uh, somewhere in the world. So the last three we did were in Egypt, Austria, Thailand, and then we'll get everyone in a house for a week. Mm. Um, do a bit of work, but the main goal of it is really just to hang out, um, eat together, laugh together, have fun together, and get some of that, that context for future work. So how important is that physical space time because it's it's something that for example i know matt mullenweg and the guys at automatic do yeah um there you know there are a lot of sort of poster children for remote or virtual work and you know these quarterly meetups at least seem to be um seem to be a cornerstone of that for some of these organizations yeah i found in my teams that if i put two people on a a Skype or a Zoom or whatever discussion off the bat and expect them to work together, that pairing is more often than than not fraught with some form of communications breakdown. Whereas if they've met just once in person, the chemistry is just different. And from there, the remote work, the virtual work is just that much easier. And I don't know if that's just my anecdotal experience or if that really is something that you've thought of as key to the culture of running ghosts. No, that's, that's exactly right. And we found a hundred percent the same thing. Um, and it's so, it's so hard to pinpoint, um, particularly for large organizations like, um, buffer or automatic where they have upwards of a hundred employees and retreats costs, uh, you know, north of a hundred to $600,000. Yeah. Um, it gets, it's very hard to pinpoint the exact return on investment of doing those types of trips. But, um, again, anecdotally, I've witnessed the exact same things you're talking about mm-hmm. of seeing people work together more efficiently, uh, get along better. Our team just develops inside jokes. Every single time we go on a retreat, there'll be a dumb song that one person starts singing and the next thing, like the whole team sings it. And, <laughs> um, in in uh, Austria, the retreat we did last summer, there was in our house we had this long table and then beside that the kitchen and in the kitchen was a washing machine and this washing machine every so often dishwasher would just go mm-hmm, uh, over and over again and after a while we just sort of all started subconsciously humming along to it um, and then that became a thing that became a running joke and then we went on this cave tour and we were like that annoying group at the back of the tour <laughs> all humming the fucking washing machine song and hearing it echo around the cave and annoying all the Swiss tourists yeah. and then that that's now a story that we tell and retell to new people who join the team and uh, when we make jokes on Slack now things like that get referenced of that mm. time we hung out that time we we had that experience together and it gives a very intangible but important basis for a relationship of mm. when someone makes a joke you know their personality you know who they are are they being sarcastic are they upset are they hurt there's so much context that's lost in text and establishing um that human connection often uh 
fills so many so many of the gaps in the communication mm-hmm. that would otherwise be lost. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, uh, on the extreme end of virtual work, you've got the kind of corporate grade solutions from the Cisco's of the world with like telepresence rooms where they just don't work. And yeah, in the most extreme e- examples, the fidelity is so high that you literally have the same table on both ends <laughs> of the video call and it looks like you're sitting at the same table. And I don't know if there's a bit of an uncanny valley to it or whatever, mm. but there's just something about the situation that's not the same as being in a room. And in fact, like you, you start looking at some of the preliminary science around this and there are chemical exchanges happening in the air, yeah. picking up on subtle nuances yeah, in yeah, hand yeah. movement and all yeah. the rest of it. It's just communication, which is... I think the core of, of team, obviously it's the core of teamwork, but the core of business. I'm really interested if, if VR changes that in any way. Yeah. Like, and we have like VR meeting spaces. Yeah. I don't, I have a feeling it won't. Maybe it'll Neither be do I. more present, but I just don't think an avatar representation, like a non-picture perfect avatar representation is going to be a good enough. I think until we get through the valley and until, you know, you really, you, you really have you know, taken hold of enough of the brain to yeah. To, yeah, yeah. to replicate the situation on, on a chemical level and, and employing all of the other senses as well. And by that point, I hope we've invented teleportation, making all of this like just move. Well, that'll be the inception of the next simulation, right? That is when we escape this place. <laughs> I, for one... I uh, would like to stick around here a little bit longer. Oh, really? I welcome our new machine overlords. You can't wait for the next simulation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All take right. me down a level. Maybe the wind will be better. Let's see if the coin's still spinning. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned Zoom and Slack. What are some of the other tools or tips and tricks that you have for people running virtual teams? Yeah, Zoom and Slack are definitely the big ones. Slack's the kind of 24-7 workhorse. That's the official office. If you're online on Slack, you're in the office. It's amazing how Slack has just taken over. It's like the operating system for startups. Yeah, and that that is their bigger picture goal. That's what I find really interesting about Slack is their their long-term goal now is not just a chat app. It's where work happens. Yeah. And you're starting to see them expand into that, and I think we'll see them expand a lot more into that over the next few years. Um, Zoom, best thing we found for group video calls... Um, it has the most horrific like pricing strategy and yeah. business model of any company I've ever done business with, <laughs> except for maybe Intercom, which is equally bad. Um, but yeah, the product don't, don't get me started on 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 Intercom. <laughs> well, in, in fact, there's there seems to be a legion of the mo- at the moment of productivity tools, um, analytics platforms, etc., yeah. aimed at startups that are very good at defining a list of features on their website that aren't actually available in the product yeah. once you start using it. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? We should do that. It's like, we've got live chat. That's cool. Does it integrate into your ticketing system? Eh, not yet. Yeah. It's like, what? Yeah. And we've got a full ticketing system. Okay, does it have tags? No. Yeah. Like, <laughs> no taxonomy for you. Yeah, exactly. No. Although I suppose I've got categories. Anyway, I don't want to beat up on Intercom. Like, it's it's a it's a cool tool uh, when it's doing when you when you yeah. precisely target it at that one corner of customer engagement. See, I, I love the tool. It's just the, the pricing that I violently disagree with. Which yeah. they, they don't they charge on total users, not active users. So if you have a whole bunch of trials 
Um, you'll just be billed for those users. Even the unconverted trials, you'll be billed for them forever. Yeah. Um, which I find really stupid. Anyway, back to the tools we do use. So uh, Slack, Zoom, those are definitely the two main ones. Then we do all of our code work and code project management in GitHub, obviously. Um, and then our kind of non-code-based project management in Basecamp, which mm-hmm. I don't love. I don't think it remotely lives up to the hype. Um, but it's okay. Like, mm-hmm. we've tried all of the possible project management tools and, um, and Basecamp's probably the closest to useful uh, that we've got so far. So those are the main ones. We try we try and keep tools as simple as possible because it's very easy to get sucked into like trying every possible tool and then spending a whole bunch of time on uh, yeah. actually yeah. doing work. The worst is, is when you get factions emerging in the organization. It's like the Trello yeah. camp versus the Jira camp versus the... Oh, God. Yeah, unfortunately, <laughs> we're still small enough not to suffer from that. So we're, we're 10 full-time and then with a, a larger open source contribution base. Um, okay. Not, not quite big enough for factions yet. So, so 10 people working full-time on Ghost. Yes. Um, is there Ghost HQ? In the world somewhere? No, no, no. Everyone's remote. So at the moment we have uh, three in the UK, one in Germany, one in Austria, one in Egypt, one in the US, one in New Zealand, and I'm on a plane usually somewhere. Yeah, I think that's everyone. And and if we look at the makeup of the team, if, yeah, and you know you don't have to answer these questions if you don't want to. Yeah. But how many designers? How many developers? How many? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, operations people, support people. Uh, so one support, one operations. Uh, I'm the only designer and marketer, um, and then everyone else is an engineer, uh, pretty much. So we're very, very engineering heavy, um, which makes sense because, like, the majority of stuff... It makes perfect sense. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and then we also have, I'm very pleased to say, a 50-50 gender split, which is rather uncommon in tech. Unfortunately, um, yeah. Indeed. My, my co-founder and CTO, Hannah, is... Uh, is the the technical lead, which <laughs> takes a lot of people by surprise, um, and it's amazing. You know, the the whole sexism in tech thing is is a hot topic, and, and we don't need to get into it too much. Mm. But uh, as someone who's usually very much of the opinion that it's not nearly, or sorry, used to be very much of the opinion that it's not nearly as big a deal as people make it out to be in the kind of social justice warrior space, um, and I like to believe the best in people. Um, working with Hannah for the last four years and seeing the types of comments and things she gets just on mm. GitHub um, and on Twitter and all the like subtle little aggressive things that she gets from men constantly uh, has been amazingly eye-opening. Mm. Um, just things that I didn't think really happened uh, I've seen for years now. And it's, it's mm. yeah, there's a lot of work still to be done there, safe to say. Absolutely. And I think part of it is just men in tech being conscious of the heuristics that create a lot of these situations. So I, I yeah. also I have a partner who's, who's female. Um, we've worked together across you know a ton of projects, um, everything from podcasts to actually you know doing software together, etc. Um, and and some of the things I'll notice, you know, for example, is we'll be in a room of men, and men tend to kind of just cut into the middle of a woman speaking yeah. when another man speaking they'll shut the fuck up and listen yeah the moment a woman speaking they'll just interject halfway through and mansplain yeah you know and and if you look at it, if you if you look at it from a behavioral heuristics perspective you know that's kind of how we evolved was the male voice that evolved to boom and be loud yeah. and, and provide a warning like there's a predator for urging the village everybody shut the fuck up and listen to me right now yeah 
that's okay 10,000 years ago when we were living in the jungle and like counting out nuts and running away from leopards. It's not okay where you're in a boardroom and you're dealing with somebody yeah. who's on your level or above it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and I think the more you just make yourself aware of these things, there, you know, there's some of it is nature, some of it is nurture, and, and that's inexcusable. Yeah. Um, but it just starts with that awareness. Yeah, yeah. I think I think a big part as well is is just not uh, for a lot of I think a lot of men feel threatened when this subject comes up and like oh god not this again um, and there's there's some degree of like feeling like discussing the subject as accepting guilt or blame for it yeah um, which I think is the wrong perspective and that's maybe the thing that needs to change most is uh, just because people say there's sexism in tech and this is a real problem doesn't mean they're accusing you of it. Um, the biggest ask that I, th- that most of my female colleagues that I uh, have the pleasure of working with have is just acknowledgement that the problem is real exactly. instead of denying it. Like, let's just just start there, and if yeah. you just do that and nothing yeah. else, like, we're already 10 steps ahead. Yeah, just that awareness alone means you'll start doing something about it. Yeah. You'll start thinking about yeah. how you're enabling things and, and exactly. how you could help out. Um but yeah, so so if we get back to the ghost team, and you as a founder being a designer, um, we kind of, we're, we're at an interesting, it seems, and as a designer myself, this is something I've been thinking about a lot, is um, I, 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 for my sins, have done a lot of consulting work where not only working on my own projects, but stepping into, into other organizations mm. and trying to help them with the kind of design thinking that I think we take for granted in startups, mm. but that bigger companies are either learning about now because they've heard of books like sprint or you know they've read something that one of the kelly brothers has has uh, has written um but there's you know design used to and still in in a lot of in a lot of quarters is thought of as as the kind of the what the front end looks like what Mm. something looks Mm -hmm. like and not to i I, um, you know i'm I'm not on the the cult of jobs train but to go to the steve jobs quote design is is how it works yes and I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts, if you have any on the top of your head, about the kind of approach that a designer brings to leadership of a company, a product-based company, yeah. as opposed to, I suppose, the more traditional role of a CEO being somebody who would be more operational, um, yeah. you know, perhaps more aimed at the funding of the company and investor relations, etc. Um, what what does the designer CEO manifest as that perhaps makes it a bit different as a role from the product CEO or the operational CEO? Yeah, that's such, that's such a great question. Um, I think the way, the way any um, company leader's specialty creeps into their influence over a company is uh, where that specialty or specialization applies in all these different circumstances. So if you have a very technical company lead, um, you'll find that all of the technical parts of the company across marketing, across products, across support are very well taken care of. Mm. And all of the, the systems and infrastructure and engineering behind all of the systems will work very well. And I think the same rings true for either operational, organizational, or in this case, design. Um, and so from a design perspective, uh, I think it's really 
pinpointing the particularly the user facing or the customer facing details of every aspect of the company mm-hmm. um, and whether how well something works and how good it looks and how well it matches up to the brand in every possible situation so mm-hmm. um, design can be as simple as the obvious which is the the colors and the brand and the website design and the user interface design those things are unremarkable but the points of design which are perhaps uncommon uh, where we pay attention to is the design of the developer experience so what types of error messages you get from mm. the API um, and even how those error messages are formatted if you try and uh, do certain things with Ghost on the command line you will get a specifically designed uh, experience where you'll have the error printed out in red um, the possible cause printed out in grey and then a link to some documentation printed out in green. It's so interesting um, hearing you say that because you know as somebody who's run Ghost from the command line you know put yeah. in the npm command get it started Yeah, um, that's something I appreciated I was like wow this looks you know the yeah. output here looks really good <laughs> and so those things are considered like we'll, we'll geek out on, on those details and and pay a little bit more time and attention to uh, those points of interaction with the company, Uh, whether you're a developer, whether you are a user, whether you're a customer. um, I think that's probably the, the biggest influence I have or strength I have. What's worth mentioning is it can also be a weakness. Um, Right. Any uh, leader of company obviously has a degree of influence which is sometimes too much. And sometimes you can obsess over the details of the things you care about too much as to uh, slow down your team or um, get in the way of actual progress. So I'm constantly fighting myself over what details matter and are worth spending time on versus what wants to just let go because it's more important to ship quickly and keep the momentum going than to obsess over the exact URL structure of one particular settings page. Yeah. Um, and finding that balance, I think, is... The, the single biggest constant challenge for any startup of when to obsess over the details and when to move quickly and break things. Absolutely. And, and, and to be honest about, you know, what the deadlines are and also why they're there. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, you know, I, I've, I've dealt with a lot of startup CEOs who kind of come from a business school background and they'll mm. set the deadline. And of course the first thing engineering will ask them is cool. Why? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And it basically boils down to, because I said so, or because we've got a board meeting the next day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But but you're right. It's that it's that tension, isn't it? Yeah. Um, if we if we go back to the the genesis story of Ghost, um, you you know you, you just you, you mentioned earlier your involvement with WordPress. Yeah. Um, and and spotting kind of I won't call it a gap in the market, but it's an opportunity for something new. Um, because it's interesting. Myself as a user of WordPress was feeling the same thing at the time, which mm. is why I I kind of picked up Ghost as soon as I could and was yeah. really excited to be using it. Of course, the other thing that was happening at the time was the rise of Medium. Yeah. And it's sort of interesting to me how, um, how we think differently about content going out into the world now and where that content resides. How much of, of the ownership of the content was part of the consideration for developing Ghost? A huge, a huge part, but not a, um, not a difficult part. Like that was a very obvious thing from day one. Mm. It wasn't something that, that had like a lot of debate or consideration behind it. It was just a very obviously important thing that was always going to be there. So this notion of, of building a very, very neutral, independent organization, which created free open source software 
that provided 100% ownership to to its users. Mm. Um, it was kind of the cornerstone which everything else is built around. Um, the one thing we probably optimize all our decisions around is freedom. Um, freedom for ourselves, uh, freedom for the team in terms of how they work, freedom for our customers in terms of what they're able to do. Um, that above everything else, above making money, above um, the best possible products, everything is really mm. just about um, flexibility and freedom. And in some regard, just trying to do a good thing, trying to do a morally good thing, not for any um, lauded higher purpose or kind mm. of cliched ambition, but just because it feels good to do. It feels good to wake up and know that you feel like what you're doing matters and you're doing it for the right reasons. Mm. Um, and that keeps motivation going. So let's talk about making money and how that impacts the culture surrounding freedom and, and the values that you have as an organization yes. around freedom. How has, has the path to revenue changed that? Has it changed it? And how, do you, how, have you managed, how have you kind of maintained those core values while still becoming an organization that looks after itself? Yes, that's a great one. Um, so Ghost is a not-for-profit organization, and that freaks a lot of people out when they yeah. first hear about it. Uh, and they're like, wait, what? It's a, it's a what now? And why? Why would you do that? Um, and so the backstory behind this is a mix of, of two things. The one is um, kind of environment-based or, or technical-based, which is having spent a lot of time in, in the WordPress world, as we talked about, uh, I'd seen a lot of really horrible conflicts of interest and like awful ways of working when you mix like a for-profit and a non-profit and an open-source model together, but with the same stakeholders um, and try and make decisions about what's best mm. for the company and the products and the projects. Uh, like those things just collide in horrible ways. So I had a really good point of reference of what I did not want to do. And then from a personal point of view, I had always grown up very young, very ambitious about wanting to be successful, financially successful, successful in business. I always said from the age of like 18, I want to be a millionaire by the time I'm 26. And that was like <laughs> the thing I wanted to do. And that was the goal I'd shoot for. But in the back of my mind, I always had this niggling frustration um, of playing this game. And I think we've all played this game at some point over and over again in our heads of what would you do if you won the lottery? Yeah. So if you came into $100 million, okay, what do you do now? In the beginning, that game is super fun. You go and you give your boss the finger, yeah. you buy a Ferrari, yeah. uh, a private plane, a yacht, several houses, um, probably have some parties suitable for the movie Project X. Um <laughs> And then it gets a little bit harder, like, okay, what you've done all that, like, what do you do now? Okay, like, travel the world, learn a whole bunch of things, take amazing holidays, live like a king, fine, okay, what do you do now? And then, okay, uh, now this game starts getting hard. Now you're starting to think about, like, okay, charities and philanthropy and maybe, like, starting a business to do something. Um but if you, if you take this huge sum of money and really think about what, everything you'd spend it on, I think you can burn through all of those things, those bucket list Hollywood ideal things mm. in the space of two or three years. Okay, so let's say you have 50, 60 years left to live. What do you do now? Not what do you spend your money on, but what do you spend your time on? Yeah. Because if you've already bought and done all of those things, what do you want to spend time on? Mm. Um, and eventually... Uh, about a year after I started traveling, sitting on a little beach in the Philippines, watching some of my newly made friends uh, kite surfing on turquoise water, I realized my answer to that question was I'd be doing exactly what I was doing at that moment, which was traveling, 
um, meeting really cool people, hacking on open source software, which I felt was important, and being able to do whatever the hell I wanted. And I realized that I was doing all of that on an extremely modest freelance developer salary. And that was what made me happy. That was my end goal. If I, if I went through all of that millionaire cycle, what I would do at the end was this. This that required a very, very basic salary. I do not need a million dollars to be happy. I do not need a millionaire, not need to be mm. a millionaire mm. to achieve happiness. Um, and once I kind of finally came to that realization of after years of pondering this question, um, it melted away all of these, all of this stigma that I had about my own ideas. Like I would shoot down uh, the ideas that I have as not being big enough and not being good enough and not mm. being worthy of, you know, achieving a huge market cap. And so this idea for a new publishing platform had been in my head for years and I'd always shut it down as it will never be huge. Who needs that? It won't be big enough. How will it make money? Yeah. Exactly. But then when I came back to the idea from the point of view of, okay, it doesn't need to make me a millionaire. It just needs to pay me a full-time salary. Do we think I can find enough people to use a new publishing platform that I can make like a full-time salary? I think that's doable. Um, and then, so when it came, all of this <clears throat> in combination with the all the reasons not to have a, an open source for-profit company that gets very messy, um, it came to the conclusion of journalism is based on independence and, and transparency and uh, doing the right thing. What if you built a company on those same principles and you made it a non-profit organization and you made the sole ambition of a company whose traditional role is to make as much wealth for its shareholders as possible, mm. you made it have no wealth for its shareholders whatsoever. What if you applied this whole philosophy that I'd kind of been brewing to a company and made its sole ambition not to get as big as possible, not to make as much money as possible, not to sell to Facebook or Google? How would that affect the product? How would that affect the team? How would that affect the culture and the community? <clears throat> the culture and the community and the users mm. what kind of organization would grow out of that completely different starting point um, that tickled me <laughs> I found that like to be a really curious mm. interesting problem and obviously I didn't know what the answer was but the the feeling that I had then and that I still maintain to this day is the only thing that could come out of that would be positive and um long term something that would be sustainable and, and survive over a long time um, rather than trying to grow as big as, as fast as possible mm. and um, four years later no regrets I feel really really good about that decision and this independent business that we've created which is profitable 100% sustainable um, is by far the proudest thing I've ever worked on and <clears throat> if there's one thing I hope Ghost can achieve beyond its its own ambitions of doing things in the journalism space it's to be a role model to other startup founders in some capacity just to say there is an alternative business model you mm. don't have to go and get VC yeah. um, you don't have to go for the, the, the Facebook Uber medium whatever approach mm. you can also build a really good business um, much like we're by no means the first people to do this much like Basecamp or others have done before uh, which is completely independent which you have 100% control over mm. which pays you a fantastic salary that rivals any startup you could go and work for mm. um, that will be around for years to come and that does meaningful important work um, and just to suggest that it's possible to do all of those things you can yeah, have your yeah. cake and code it as well <laughs> I absolutely love that and you mentioned Basecamp um, you know David Hanamai Hansen does talk a lot about this approach to business yeah um, you know <clears throat> leaving behind the traditional um, VC 
ideas and and I, I, I suppose the thing that that worries me both most is is the obsession with growth yeah it's just it's 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 almost a foregone conclusion in business that you should be getting bigger every year you should be making more profits every year you should you yeah. should be growing and biggering and biggering yeah um ad infinitum what's wrong with having a business that shows modest growth um makes profits looks after everybody involved in it delights its customers yeah and and continues that way and you're right base camp is a good example of that ghost is a good example of that i suppose buffer two degrees a good example of that yeah um and I, I I love I love what that incites in a team, and, and one of the things is transparency. You know, another yeah. thing all of these organisations have in common. Uh, well, I know Ghost and Buffer do anyway. Is you're completely transparent with your revenues, your profits, yes. who's getting paid what in the business, because you don't have a fiduciary duty to hide those things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> um, and I think it, it it creates a kind of an honesty and and helps the business. I can't think of a better way of saying it than just to keep it real, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's a, that's a great place to um, end this conversation. I say this one because it feels like a part one. <laughs> I'm hoping we'll do this again at some point. Absolutely, yeah, um, it's been great. But thank you so much for, for taking time to share your thoughts. Um, and thank you for Ghost. Like I said, I've been a user since the get-go. I'm now a paid Ghost Pro user. Um, <laughs> So I've got my three blogs. Well, in fact, I've got my one. I've got two spares. So <laughs> if anybody needs a blog, <laughs> but it really is a fantastic platform. I use it in my startups, um, and you've got you've got some pretty big customers now, don't you? We do. Yeah. NASA runs their blogs on yeah, Ghost, don't they? NASA, Vivo, uh, Sky News. We've got we've got some amazing names. Uh, Elon Musk's new AI uh, startup is is going to run on Ghost as well. Good company. Is, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Good company to very, be. Very exciting. Um, we've got version 1.0 coming out as well in the next couple of months, which is going to be a big, 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 big milestone. So that's something to look forward to. Fantastic. So ghost.io or ghost.org? Ghost. Ghost.org. We have both. Right. So both will work, but .org is the, uh, the official homepage. Awesome. Thanks so much, John. Been a pleasure. Hope you enjoyed that conversation and got some value from it. If you did, please consider sharing it on like Twitter or Facebook or just grab your friends' phones when they aren't looking and subscribe them to the podcast. Leave a little surprise for them to discover later. Uh, you can also subscribe, of course, on iTunes. We should be on Stitcher by the time you hear this. SoundCloud, Overcast, wherever you get your podcasts, except Google Play, which for some insane reason doesn't allow podcasters in my country to submit podcasts to the Play Store. Hopefully they'll fix that sooner or later. We're also on Patreon. If you go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com and just search for my name, Simon Dingle. That's the easiest way to find our page and then you can support us with small donations as well if you'd like. Otherwise, more information about me, what I do and the show at simondingle.com which is where you can also make Bitcoin donations if you'd prefer because I know we would. Until next time, Thanks for listening and goodbye.